This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Across Australia, house prices and rents are skyrocketing. From November 2020 to April this year, average house prices increased by nearly $160,000. That's around $300 more a day. And in the space of two years, rents have gone up nationally by 13%. And as economics correspondent Peter Hannum reports, rents are particularly high in regional areas. Well, look, uh, yes, Guardian's written quite a few stories about this. We're still receiving information. In fact, you know, this very afternoon, I got uh, some information about the Nambucca Valley in New South Wales and a whole string of anecdotes about just how much uh, things were getting out of control. Now, one of these cases was talking about, quote, how do you compete with people paying over $30,000 to secure a rental? It's a joke. On the campaign trail, the Prime Minister was asked what his government would do for renters, and he responded... Best way to support people who are renting a house is to help them buy a house. So, what are the main housing policies on the table heading into this election? And what would these policies do for housing affordability? Today, does anyone have a plan to fix Australia's housing affordability crisis? It's Tuesday, the 10th of May. So, Peter, when did rent and houses become so expensive? Well, look, some experts put it down to about uh, three decades ago when it became basically much easier for people to buy investment properties in Australia. And that's when you start to see average home ownership rates begin to fall. Well, I mean, I think Australia has, has for a long time had a culture of home ownership. Professor Hal Paulson is a professor of housing research and policy at the University of New South Wales. And Australia thinks of itself as a home-owning society or, you know, has historically thought of itself that way. I think still does to some extent. I think that's increasingly at, at variance with reality because home ownership rates have been falling for um, 15 or 20 years. That, you know, that, that's not such an accurate representation of reality as it used to be. And um, I think uh, we haven't fully adjusted to that reality. Mm. So specifically in Australia, what were the main drivers over the past 20 years since then that has driven up housing prices in the, in the broadest sense? Yeah, so policy settings and market forces have kind of come together to create the housing system that we have. A massive part of this, before we come to tax settings, is the way that interest rates have been on a downward path for, well, pretty much 30 years in Australia, basically until this week. And that process, which is a a global thing, it's not unique to Australia, has enabled borrowers or people wanting to enter homeownership or, or buy an investment property for that matter, to secure loans, larger and larger loans, for the same amount of repayment or on on the same amount of income. So when we're in this world of very low interest payments, then you can borrow so much more. So, you know, and most most people are keen to buy the best house that they can get on their current income. So, you know, we've seen this phenomenal real terms increase in house prices, which really took off 
around about 1990. Um, and that has very much coincided with the falling interest rates for most of that period. Right. So overall house prices have gone up partly because people are willing and able to pay more due to these interest rates. What about the second plank that you mentioned, the government policies around tax? Yeah, we need to recognise that through the tax system, government effectively spends a huge amount on housing already in Australia. Um, For the capital gains tax uh, concession for owner-occupiers, amounts to between 60 and $70 billion per year, and around about $12 billion of concessions flow to private landlords through um, negative gearing and capital gains tax um, discount. Well, look, these policies, capital gains tax and negative gearing, of course, favour those already in the market. For instance, when you go to the bank, they can see you've got a whole chunk of assets which they can grab if you look like you can't repay. But if you're fronting up for the first time, you don't have that. So you're at a disadvantage to start with. But those tax arrangements, particularly the negative gearing ones, gives those investors an advantage over somebody who doesn't have uh, those uh, policies on offer. That all means that there's more competition at that auction for those first-home buyers. And they're looking really at a dwindling number of properties to go for. And that drives up the prices. So, Peter, just to summarise some of this, because it is pretty complex. So, house prices are going up because interest rates and tax settings means that more people can buy more expensive homes or just more homes, you know, investment properties and second or third homes and the like. So, there's just generally more competition for houses overall. I imagine that all of this could also drive up rents. Can you just break down how, though, Peter? If there's, you know, more people taking out a second home, uh, squeezing what's available for your regular renters, uh, particularly in regional areas, the demand has been the same, but the supply has dried up and that's always going to push up prices. And that's what we've seen. What has been happening is that people seeking a second house outside the city, maybe in regional areas during the pandemic, they've used uh, record low interest rates to get that second or third place out there. And, and so far, they're holding on to them. Obviously, short-term rentals like Airbnb has also been crowding out rentals. Hal, what else is driving up rent prices? Uh, increasing the difficult jump to home ownership is, is keeping middle and higher income earners in the private rental market for longer. And therefore, their, their demand is pumping up um, rental prices. But at the other end of the market, also very significant, and this is highly policy related, the choices for um, low income renters in the housing market have become more and more constrained because the scale of social rental housing provision has been falling and falling in relative terms. I mean, the, the, the absolute number of social housing properties has been roughly stable uh, since the 1990s. It's just increased a tiny bit. I think that the, the figure is that since the mid-1990s, social housing has increased by about 4% in, in sort of absolute terms. Population has increased by 30. But why is a lack of social housing or government-subsidised housing bad for the rental market, Hal? So there's been increasing pressure at the bottom end of the private rental market because the possibility of low-income earners to relieve their housing situation through getting a a tenancy in public housing or community housing has been squeezed and squeezed. So that's one reason why trying to restore the routine 
investment in social housing, which was normal in Australia for 50 years until 1996, there's an argument that that would be beneficial in the private rental market as well, because it would reduce the pressure of demand at the bottom end. So Peter, what solutions are on the table this election to fix these dual crises, both for renters and for potential homeowners? In the broader scheme of things, government policies tend to favour home ownership and not renting. They're viewing the fact that there's roughly two-thirds of the population uh, that either have paid off their house or are in the process of paying off a mortgage. So they figured, like, that's the larger share and they're the voters we want to um, win over. More voters are homeowners, basically. Yeah. Uh, that sort of gives a signal and the major parties pick it up. So let's step through each party's response. What has the coalition put on the table here? Well, the coalition's main policy around housing, the so-called home guarantee scheme. Mm. Now, they say they've supported almost uh, 60,000 first home buyers and single-parent families into home ownership through their home guarantee scheme in the last uh, few years, uh, with a deposit as little as 5%, uh, and and lately even as low as 2%. So that um, first home loan deposit guarantee scheme, which is its full title, uh, it's a terrible mouthful, um, is being continued, and both parties propose to expand it to enable not all first-term buyers, but possibly up to half of all first-term buyers, to get access to that government-assisted scheme to give you the opportunity to take out a loan uh, with only a 5% deposit, not a 20% deposit. So both parties are offering that. And what about Labor's scheme? A large chunk of that was announced just last week. How is their plan any different? So the most recent announcement is a shared equity program called Help to Buy, this is the labour policy contributing, as you know, a large chunk of that mm. purchase price to help people that might be struggling to buy a home. They're proposing to contribute up to 40% of a new home and 30% on an existing mm. one. Um, and the scheme would only require a 2% deposit. Um, but but uh, we're talking about like 10,000 houses in that order, which, mm. you know, if there's hundreds of thousands uh you know, uh, houses changing hands per year, that's sort of drop in the ocean type levels. Mm, This idea was put to Anthony Albanese at the leaders' debate on Sunday. So isn't that just a drop in the ocean when young Australians are trying to get to the Australian dream? Well, it is true to say, David, that young Australians are finding it more and more difficult to get access uh, to the great dream of home ownership. Uh, But what we have is modest practical plans to make a difference, whether it's public housing, whether it be affordable housing, or whether it be assisting people into home ownership. That's an additional plan uh, from the ones that we've supported the government to implement. So, as you said, there's about 10,000 spots for this type of program each year. Who is it for? It's particularly tailored to a part of the population, right? Yes, look, you know, they, they portion that 10,000. Um, they still sort of divvy up maybe how much, but there'll be some people who... Uh, maybe uh, because they're emergency services or limited role or they have some other, um, you know, restriction making it hard. So the 10,000 be divided by different groups. So income caps that, uh, you know, will be up to $90,000 for a single, 120000 for a couple. 
So it's uh, it's going to kind of uh, limit, you know, the flood of people, but that will still capture a lot. So you can imagine, you know, the 10,000 cases or places would be snapped up pretty quickly. So Scott Morrison has criticised this scheme. He says that it's not well thought out. Labor has a plan where they want the government to own your home. And that it means the government would own your home and would actually benefit from any renovations or improvements that you make on it. Is that criticism true and fair, Peter? Well, look, I mean, if the government is taking share of the risk, uh, you know, presumably, you know, they deserve some of the share of the upside. Mm. You know, why Why should the uh, homeowner... I mean, the homeowner gets a lot of benefit from getting into the housing market, an asset, um, which they'll, um, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll grow in value. Um, and, uh, you know, if some of the burden's been picked up from somewhere else, then it's probably only fair. And I think it does come back to, you know, what is it that we want uh, the population to be uh, and... You know, the Greens in particular would highlight the fact that um, you want to encourage people to have certainly one home. They've got a limit on, for instance, negative gearing limit to one other property. That seems like uh, an effort to stop uh, this maldistribution, smaller parts of population occupying larger share of the asset base and so on. Mm. Right. So that's broadly the plan for home ownership from the coalition, from the major parties. What about renting? Have either major party proposed anything substantial that would change the renting crisis right now? Well, again, not really. I mean, it's not much from the uh, coalition except, you know, they want to support uh, regional areas. I haven't given many details on that. Mm. For the ALP's case, you know, wanting to build 30,000 so-called uh, new social and affordable housing properties over the first five years. So, you know, 6,000 on average doesn't go very far. Um, so you can say that's probably uh, somewhat limited. Um, you know, maybe it'll take uh, the heat out of the bottom of the market, but it's not really going to be enough. So that's the major parties. What about the Greens, Peter? You mentioned that they want to tinker with things like negative gearing. What else have they said? Arguably, the Greens have got the most uh, ambitious, um, some might say uh, sort of uh, out of this world um, (laughs) policy in terms of the chance of it going ahead. But um, according to their policy, which they ran by uh, the Parliamentary Budget Office, which put a a $30 billion plus price tag on it, maybe a submarine or two, (laughs) um, but over 20 years, uh, the Greens, uh, through a housing trust, would build um, a million homes, so that's uh, 50,000 per year. And of those, 750,000 homes would be reserved for people on low incomes to slash the public housing uh, waiting lists, which we know are long and getting longer. 125,000 would be shared ownership. So maybe that's a kind of a elbow, you know, on steroids uh, approach to, mm. to uh, the shared ownership. Um, and uh, 125,000 further would be, you know, public universal access rentals um, to um, effectively, you know, ensure that there's universal housing. So, uh, you know, many places uh, are needed, and uh, you know, 50,000, uh, I'm sure, um, would go some way every year to closing that gap. 
Right, so a million houses overall over 20 years. Some of it will be co-owned, some of it just, you know, affordable and social housing for people. It's a lot more than what Labor's putting on the table and definitely the coalition, right? Yes, we're talking about magnitudes different, really. I think the important, the sort of challenge that they're throwing down to the other parties there is it's a political choice that governments which um, were major players in housing and land development in the 1950s and 1960s in Australia, not in other countries, here, we were, we were governments were building 16% of all housing in Australia for 25 years after World War II. Um, 16%, the current number is 1%. Um, so yeah, we have done it historically. And the Greens policy is throwing down the gauntlet to um, this sort of conventional thinking there, saying, well, why don't we you know, revisit that? What's impossible about that? Um, why shouldn't government um, use its existing legal powers and its existing ability to take out debt at very low rates, even now that rates are possibly going up a bit, um, to be a, a much bigger player in the housing system than it has been for a long time. Next, what would these policies do for housing affordability? Just looking at Labor and the Coalition specifically, would either of those plans make houses more affordable in Australia, Peter? Yes, look, um, probably uh, it's going to be very marginal, the difference. So certainly if you're among those lucky 10,000, there may be a benefit um, if you manage to get in there. Um, but, uh, you know, on the broader scheme, it's really... Uh, extremely marginal, won't make a huge amount of difference. And that's probably part of the intention. It's uh, you know, not to scare the horses so much mm. because, uh, you know, um, homes are the biggest asset uh, most families have. And, of course, for some families, they have multiple homes. So, um, yeah, nothing that's really going to uh, shake the market too much would probably be um, they'd be happy to get away with that. Mm. According to experts that you've spoken to, if you're only goal heading into this election was to make housing and renting more affordable. What are the policies that they would like to see put on the table? What you need to keep in mind yeah, when it comes to rental housing and homelessness uh, at pre-pandemic levels, and I'm citing a, a paper by UNSW, about half of rental households receive a government payment. So mm. it's like one out of two is getting some kind of government payment as part of the income. But a full 27%, that's more than a quarter, that payment is their main source of income. So whether it's age and disability support, job seeker, family tax benefit, rental assistance. So if you want to tackle rental assistance, you've got to go after those areas. Can be costly, but uh, so far we haven't seen that. That's not part of the major government policies. Right, so increasing welfare payments would actually help about a quarter of renters keep up with rising rents. But how do you actually make rent cheaper in the first place? So, look, on the one hand, uh, giving more assistance to rent renters uh, or more assistance to people trying to get into the housing market 
that's pushing up the prices of those various things that you're trying to like make it easier for people to cope with. So unless you massively increase the supply um, or find some way to um, means test to uh, discourage uh, wealthy people uh, who don't need assistance benefiting, um, then you're going to make it worse. So yes, give more support to renters um, and let's say first-home buyers, but B, also make sure there's uh, expanded supply. So governments can help expand housing supply, and that looks like involving local governments and state governments, as uh, particularly Labor's pointed out. Uh, all three levels do need to work together because sometimes it means um, increasing the available land, but how that sits with existing, for instance, environmental controls those things may be in the state's hands, not so much in the federal's. And when you say housing, I mean, it, it could just actually involve building housing, like affordable housing or social housing, right, Peter? Yes, look, as well, you could actually become a builder, as once upon a time governments were. The Greens are proposing that. Uh, that's not so much uh, Labor or the government's policy. How other than increasing welfare and building more housing, particularly affordable housing, I imagine, what else would level out the housing market in Australia? Yeah, so certainly um, there's a very strong case for winding back the advantages that I think are very hard to justify in economic terms that private landlords enjoy through negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount. And we, we, know, we, we just have to revisit that. And that isn't just a view of ivory tower, social policy academics, um, it's an absolutely mainstream economics view. I mean, I'm not saying that there are, there are some e economists who would probably say, no, we should keep all those settings in place. But I think the overwhelming consensus among economists is that those tax settings are not justifiable and really should be a target for phasing down. So, Peter, outside of the policies that the governments have control over, we also know that the interest rate is rising for the first time in decades. As we've discussed, low interest rates have fed into this housing affordability issue. What should we expect to happen in the housing market now that they're rising? Well, look, I, I suspect there's a little bit of a race about to start. Um, yes, uh, rates are rising and they're probably going to go perhaps two percentage points higher, maybe more. Um, and it is interesting that organizations like CoreLogic, CBA, that's uh, Commonwealth Bank, and others are expecting house prices to plateau and start to fall. Sydney, Melbourne may already be starting to turn. Other state capitals, et cetera, uh, not seeing it yet, but the growth rate is slowing. So you could argue that um, one effect of the uh, increase in the interest rates is that some of the steam is taken out of house prices and they may start to fall. And uh, in that sense, houses might become more affordable. But that's it's a bit of a fine line, which is bigger, the effect, um, you know, falling prices so it's cheaper to buy versus it's becoming more expensive to borrow to do so. Right, so houses might become cheaper, but loans and therefore mortgage repayments will be more expensive. What kind of effect could that have in the broadest sense? In broad terms, once we've sort of um, hitched our economy so much to the housing wagon, if that goes, tips over, off the rails, changes course, you name it, um, there will be wider repercussions and we just have to see how, how big they are. 
That was Peter Hannum, economics correspondent at Guardian Australia. You can read more of The Guardian's coverage about the housing crisis at theguardian.com. There's a whole series titled Australia's Rental Crisis, which includes many, many stories of renters, plus Peter's latest piece titled Locked Out, Housing's Become a Path to Wealth, But Renters Have Been Left Behind. You can also read a side-by-side comparison of the two major parties' policies on home buying by our senior political correspondent, Sarah Martin. We link to those on the full story page. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Laura Briley-Newton and Karishma Luthria. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. OK, catch you tomorrow.